You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Welcome everyone to M Pavilion. Our conversation today is held on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and I acknowledge them as the traditional custodians. I pay my respect to their elders past, present and also those emerging. Today, in presenting this M Relay, we bring you the topic Beyond Diversity, Creating Global Cities. Each runner today, and we have many amazing people, will take the baton and pass their ideas, their thoughts and their considerations down amongst the relay. My name is Nevinus Birovska and I have the distinct pleasure of starting off this race. As we stand, exist and work here today, we cannot look forward to creating global cities without further acknowledging the immediate need to return this country to its traditional owners, whose inherent right it is to determine the future of these lands. I myself am not a builder, I'm not an architect, and I'm not an engineer. That shall not come as a surprise to anyone. But I contend that before we look to building global cities, we look at the blueprints of the ones that make up our current homes. Since 1788, this country has been built with the master's tools. And as Audre Lorde famously told us, the master's tools cannot be used to dismantle the master's house. The master's tools are powerful. Opening this toolbox, you'll find the hammer of white supremacy, capitalism, heteronormativity and patriarchy. They have been so successful in creating global cities like Melbourne, like City, that many people consider them to be the only way of life, their way of life. But today, in the bunnings of ideas, we need to destroy these tools and look forward to see beyond diversity. What does it look like and how are we going to get there? What tools will we use to create global cities? Pardon me, I had a simmet for breakfast and I've got a sesame seed stuck in my throat. What tools will we use to create global cities when every border implies the violence of its maintenance? However, <coughs> this is not a performance piece. This is real. Let me try that again. When we remove borders, in the past there has been a hasty rush to erect even more. Nowhere has this been more noticeable than in my home country in Yugoslavia, where ethnic cleansing resulted in attempts to purify space. Borders are equally impermeable. Some can cross them relatively easy. For others, it's made to be a matter of death when seeking life. Today, in our M Relay, I have the distinct pleasure of talking to some brilliant minds, many who I've heard before, read before, seen before. If this is your first time, I welcome you to open up your mind, your ears and your heart to what they bring for you. I'd like to invite my first speaker up, Farah Farouk, to the theoretical shed of ideas. She is the principal advisor, public affairs policy person at the Brotherhood in St. Lawrence, and the chair of board at Social Studio, a social enterprise and a fashion label working with people from refugee backgrounds. Please make her very welcome.
Thanks, Nevena. Um, we had established earlier that when, when two diverse people meet and mispronounce each other's names, that's not a good look. So we've, we've already established that um, the right way to pronounce each other's names. And so that's a start, isn't it? A start to the global city. <laughs> and now this is not a ex- question I was expecting to ask today and perhaps not one many people were expecting to hear. But fashion's on the field. Tell me what you're wearing today. <laughs> Thank you so much, Nevena. I did um, ask her to ask me that question specifically because I wanted to showcase um, the social studio where I'm the board chair. The social studio is, an, uh, I consider, an extraordinary antidote to our times. And I invite every single one of you, and I'm, I'm taking on a marketing aspect here, to visit us in Collingwood, 128 Collingwood, uh, Smith Street, Collingwood, where we showcase the talents positivity and, um, and um, creativity of emerging uh, 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 designers um, who are people who've experienced, uh, you know, have had refugee experiences but are an untapped resource in our global city. And we need more spaces like the social studio and other places to, to showcase these talents, not as some kind of other but as, you know, fully functioning creatives in this society. And I, um, I applaud this discussion because I think it, it, it gives uh, mainstream opportunities here at the centre of this global city to talk about an organisation like that. So I thank you for asking me. It is a social studio frock and two others are available in other colours. <laughs> thank you. We're going to do a pop-up shop uh, <laughs> after the event today, so stick around if you'd like to learn more. Now, you're going to be celebrating 10 years of the social studio next year. How has the concept of diversity changed in that time for you? Well, we like to think that we were a little bit ahead of the pack in diversity because, I mean, the the term diversity is such a colourless term, isn't it? What does it mean? I mean, I think that's a question we're unpacking today uh, with our numerous speakers and each will have their own versions thereof. Now, the social studio, I think, kind of animates the idea of diversity as something that belongs not to uh, an elite uh, group of people schooled in, you know, sort of uh, institutions uh, that are, you know, that the same people and, they, uh, and others access. But it, it, it opens arts and creativity to a broader group, a group that actually exercise it in their daily life and the concept behind the social studio is the um, bringing together of uh, young people often uh, who haven't been able to access these opportunities through schools and um, other kind of mainstream you know um, institutions um, and, and have felt alienated or not belonging, not having a sense of belonging, and being able to come into a welcoming space where they can showcase their creativity. And it's not about being taught by someone superior. It's about sharing of ideas and sharing of creativity. And I think at the heart of unpacking a kind of a diverse version of Australia for the 21st century through an organisation like the Social Studio, and we hope that will spread to other organisations, is the idea that it's not teaching, it's not one superior sort of, you know, set of ideas, you know, sort of educating. Though, of course, education is a key element of it because we work with RMIT, a global institution, uh, a learning institution to sort of... um, uh, for our students to get qualifications uh, in a TAFE, in clothing production and such. But beyond that, it's the idea of sharing creativity and uh, building a future together. If that doesn't sound too cliched, and I don't, you know, those sort of words can sound cliched, but I think actually um, 
when we're talking about diversity from the perspective of an organisation like the social studio, it, it's, it's, it's very important to say that it's not one group dominating. It's about the sharing and coming together. What does a global city look like to you? Well, a global city has um, many more people like me, uh, you know, uh, born overseas, an immigrant who came to Australia in, uh, in the mid-70s with my parents. Uh, you know, we're at the centre of power. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we are also bringing forth our, um, our um, you know, others and, uh, and, and actually mentoring and, you know, being an example to others. But, but it doesn't mean, um, and I'm, you know, maybe I'm an arch conservative, but it doesn't mean there's not space for the, for the others. You know, uh, for the others, I mean the white people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing a bit of othering, but in an inverted way. Um, I actually, um, I've, I've been struck by this notion of um, whiteness whiteness that has kind of come into our discussion and uh, to be honest as a sort of an old immigrant um, who grew up in Australia and went to law school and actually I've had a fairly you know accessible ride through Australia I joined the age newspaper I worked in the Supreme Court um, I, I'm well educated my father was an academic you know I think class issues come very strongly to the issues of diversity and sort of when we put diversity as some kind of all-encompassing term and all immigrants you know um, uh, uh, the immigrant experience is a very varied one. That of a refugee is very different from someone like me, um, whose father, you know, and, and mother are university qualified people who came in that first flush of skills, etc. So I do think issues of class need to be taken into account, and I, I, I actually think that the issue of diversity isn't just cultural diversity; it's the socio-economic diversity. That is very important, and that's not confined to one cultural subset. I was actually quite intrigued by um, something I read the other day in social media. And Professor Megan Davis, a leading um, uh, Indigenous leader, uh, said, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, um, we're not a subset of cultural diversity. We're the first peoples. And I think that's an important thing to also remember. And I think that you've, you know... Uh, spoken of that in your acknowledgement. So, look, I think uh, uh, the, the idea of diversity, it, the, 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 even the term doesn't really capture what's required. Uh, it does require a shift, uh, but we, we also have to work within the existing, situ uh, existing institutions because, let's face it, change in Australia is deeply incremental. <laughs> and it's so interesting that you touched on education. How do we begin to dismantle these colonial institutions who are built on the backs of where at Melbourne Uni racial science began and at RMIT is, has deep colonial links. Can we diversify our education so it becomes more meaningful to the people that are emerging now from those spaces? Well, um, as a product of one of those institutions, I grew up in Adelaide, um, so I've had an education in a law school in a mainstream university. I, I, I take your point, but I think that uh, I, I don't see it that way. I, I see the I see education as 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 a kind of a um, escalator to opportunity, and I think we can't sort of redefine um, a, a sort of the, the, the you know the basics of education to suit. 
a new paradigm in, in that sense. You know, I mean, there's a scholarship and, uh, and there needs to be a more diverse population accessing the scholarship and participating and holding the levers. Call me an arch-conservative for saying that. Um, of course, if there's, a, uh, if there's a statue of some, you know, unpleasant person, take it down, of course. But, <laughs> but, uh, but I actually think that we, ne we need to ha bring more people into the centre so they can kind of reshape rather than, you know... Um, we, we need to have we need to work with our allies and I don't see I think that universities like the University of Melbourne University of uh, uh, RMIT and of course let's not just look at those institutions where are the uh, diverse people attending they're attending Latrobe Victoria University the TAFE sector the TAFE sector is an ex extraordinary engine room for equity um, and so let's not define education in in LE terms um, so I do see um, I think we need to work with our allies, and I think we, you know, we, 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 we need to bring them along with us. And coming back to the social studio, where have you found allies to grow your work? Well, everywhere, frankly. From you know, I think there is an appetite and uh, uh, good intentions uh, around this work, but of course. You know, I do concede the point you're making. The control needs to shift in, you know, we, we can't have control by a small group of people uh, who've always been, you know, the people who've controlled institutions. We need to, the power needs to be shared and devolved. And that's, you know, the concept behind the social studio. Um, and, you know, we, we can, we, we're one, I mean, we're a small organisation. You know, this for now. This, for now, yes, we have uh, we have uh, uh, global aspirations, of course. But <laughs> but um, look, I think it's about power sharing uh, and uh, and being realistic about the kind of change you can achieve and working with allies. And we, we know Ian Potter, in, uh, the Ian Potter um, philanthropic uh, organization, is you know a very um, uh, traditional old organisation, they're one of our greatest supporters. So, you know, look at M Pavilion, the, um, the patrons of the M Pavilion are also philanthropists, very much part of mainstream culture, but they're, our al they're allies, they are putting on this talk, but obviously, um, you know, wouldn't it be great if um, the next generation of philanthropists is amongst the diverse population here? <laughs> That's what I'm working towards. <laughs> Perhaps not me personally. I'm afraid I haven't been in the sort of sectors to amass great wealth. <laughs> Do you feel that we're reaching an end to geography? Geography? Well, I mean, you know, I think geography and place matters a lot to opportunity. So, actually, I mean, yes, we're in a globalised setting and, you know, board... Borders are more porous, but I wouldn't. I would say, say that the existence of Nauru and Manus and other appalling sort of islands uh, 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 actually suggests that it's not an end to geography at all. Geography is being used and manipulated in particular ways. We're not borderless, actually. So, um, but I, um, you know, um, I think the nation state is actually having a, another moment uh, in that uh, nationalism is on the rise. Uh, and uh, and it's appealing to uh, you know a set of sort of quite uh, disturbing forces. So actually, I don't think we're seeing the end of geography. We're seeing the assertion of geography, and uh, you know that can have concerning aspects. Do you see any benefits to it at all? Nationalism, actually, as someone who has multiple identities, 
uh, I'm, I'm actually, I carry two citizenships, etc. When I go overseas, I, I, I don't, partic- I, I think of myself actually as sort of a person rather than defined by a particular country or, you know, I don't feel myself as particularly Sri Lankan, that's my background. Um, I'm a citizen there, but I, I'm quite different. Um, I see myself as Australian, but I don't go around sort of, you know, with a tin of Vegemite when I'm overseas or anything like that. In fact, these days I find people probe you about coming from Australia. They have a perception overseas of Australia as being quite insular, which I, I think can be unfair um, because it's not, you know, it's not across the board. We have our difficulties but then so do many other emerging countries. There's quite deep racism, actually, in many, um, you know, um, country, countries where the peop- where issues of class and status define uh, identity. So, um, yes, that's my answer. <laughs> I hope it's satisfactory. Of course it is. And I would like you all to invite me in thanking Farah and welcoming up Andy Butler to the stage. Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Thank you for having me. Could you please give us a two-sentence introduction to yourself? Uh, So I am a writer, curator and an artist. uh, And also, uh, this is my second diversity panel this month. Um, It's a very hot topic at the moment, so I'm often ruled out for these sorts of things. I've previously worked in in the arts. I'm a freelancer now. but I previously worked for major rights organisations, usually as the only person of colour in an all-white office, uh, while they're trying to get diversity off the ground. So I guess that's where a lot of my experience and expertise in this, this area sort of comes from. Andy, what were your thoughts when you first heard the title today, Beyond Diversity, Creating Global Cities? Um, that I know nothing about urban design. I don't know anything about... Yeah about city building that's not really my yeah my area of interest or research but obviously like cities are something that affect me it's something that I live in and yeah reflecting on the first part of this title beyond diversity given that you've already had two panels just recently and how many would you estimate throughout the year oh so oh like maybe between eight and ten this year why does this continue to be something that is talked about so often, in your opinion? Because in the arts, people are terrible at it. Like, we are so, so bad at it. And, you know, the sort of band-aid that people put in it, uh, put on it is getting people that look like us to stand in front of a, you know, a group of predominantly white people who perhaps have gone through their whole lives from their school to their family to their neighbourhoods to uh, high school to university to their jobs... Uh, predominantly being around other people of uh, Anglo-European descent and then wondering, oh, wow, this diversity thing. Oh, I don't know anyone that's diverse. Maybe I'll ask that guy to come and talk about it. Without actually critically considering the sort of the racialized power structures that have defined Australia since uh, 1788 and then written into law at Federation, that it's something that has stayed with us and keeps on coming back around. And so it's like what you were saying before, Farah, about... um, you know, diversity, not touching these bigger issues. It just really doesn't. And I think people are quite, yeah, very reticent to talk openly and honestly about what really the issue is, which is like a, a systematically concentrated 
uh, concentration of power in culturally homogenous hands in Australia. Like that's, yeah. And within your expertise of the artistic institutions that you have not only engaged with, but I get the sense that you're moving away from them. <laughs> so much of their diversity is tick box. How do these institutions get beyond diversity? Um, yeah, I guess it's, yeah, thinking critically about what the issue is. Um, and I've been lucky enough to have uh, worked uh, formulating some diversity strategies for organisations. There are actually like some steps and ways to think of these issues that actually are much more productive than what we're doing now. So there needs to be a short, medium and long term sort of strategy for how to overcome like the whiteness that is embedded and caked into everything that we do. It takes relationship building. It takes... Uh, having people of colour and First Nations people at decision-making levels from the board down. Uh, it takes, yeah, I don't know, it just takes vision. And I don't think that many organisations do have that. Uh, and I think it's, you know, the thing that's sort of blocking that vision is this, um, yeah, just people aren't, yeah, open to acknowledging what the issue is. And it's like, don't fucking feel, feel guilty about it. Like, this is what we've inherited. And so we can all come together and work together to try and overcome it. And, yeah, I don't know. In a global city, is there anywhere that you feel local to? Um, I've lived in Thornbury for about five years. It's pretty nice. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's pretty nice. Yeah. Andy, I was re reading your... Um, uh, Oh, sorry. I was reading your essay about uh, attending a, um, an exhibition at the NGV where you had worked, mm -hmm. and it was a it was a reflection of um, of the contemporary art practice, you know, of Melbourne. And you you were feeling very bruised by the um, images. Can you explain? Because mm. I thought it was a really it, it, more than bruised. You were offended, yeah. I think. Um, can I? Why don't you tell the audience about that experience? Because yeah. it was. Um, you know, it um, it sort of it, it it sort of expresses the broader points you're making in the world you operate in. Yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily uh, not necessarily bruised or offended. I think it's just really tired. Like that's that's what it was. Just really fucking had a gutful of it. Like that uh, the contemporary art sector uh, had been so like yeah had talked about how much they care about diversity and inclusion and being progressive, but they're actually just in a white middle-class echo chamber, um, which became really clear through this one particular exhibition that was up at um, the NGV that uh, sort of documented the Melbourne arts community between 2013 and 2015 and across about 80 galleries. Um, yeah, and I was just, I don't know. I just, yeah, was really exhausted by being the one diverse person in the room while people were talking about inclusion. And that is actually just, like, such a common occurrence in the arts. And across so many sectors, across politics, law, academia, business, all of this sort of stuff, it's just like, you know, being that person who is paraded around as a very visible commitment to diversity is just exhausting. It's really like, yeah, I don't know. 
And I mean, you, you came, you, you grew up in Kalgoorlie, you came via Perth. So how, how did a guy like you end up in the arts sector? I mean, you, did, did, <coughs> what were the op did you have to create your opportunities? Uh, I guess I came to it pretty late. Um, so I was amongst the first generation in my family to graduate from high school, which is very exciting. Um, and I say that not to be taken as someone who's like overcome all this stuff and it's really amazing. Um, <laughs> it's actually just like, it's just what's happened. Um, yeah, because sometimes I feel like these sorts of stories, especially when the arts, within the arts are taken as like these inspirational stories that, you know, shows that the sector's really working well when that's like <laughs> a load of bullshit. Um, but I came to the arts actually quite by accident. Uh, I, yeah, first generation of my family finished high school. I failed uni a lot, about three times. Um, and then I started studying philosophy and I was really good at it. Uh, and then I did my honours in it and realised I never wanted to do it again. <laughs> and then in 2015, I got my first job in the arts at Acme at, um, at the bookshop for the David Bowie exhibition. So that's how I came into it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then so I've been doing it for about three years now. And, and do you, do you, are you trying to sort of encourage others to sort of penetrate the glass ceiling such as it is? Or, um, uh, I mean, what would you say to others? I'm, I'm sort of really kind of bringing it down to yeah. that level, but I'm just wondering how can you, how can the word diversity mean anything in the arts world as you describe it, in which you were saying that, I think you've done an analysis about the sort of, in Melbourne, where people had been educated in a couple of, couple of very narrow schools. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I guess like the thing that I get out of the arts now is a community building and it's beautiful. Like that's actually the thing that's really nice. Like fuck the institutions, like they, yeah. Like it's like talking to a wall, it's not, yeah. I don't know, I just feel like doing this work has actually made me a really unpleasant person to be around sometimes, just because <laughs> it's actually just inviting so much toxicity into your life. And so it's like, dude, just go and hang out with your friends and like write poetry and make art and it's beautiful and it's really nice. And like, but then the other thing as well is that like, these places need you more than you need them because they are so irrelevant. Like they really are, like it's so obvious, like, I don't know, just how stuck in the white Australia policy they are. And they need you, culturally diverse people, to look better. And so if they want you to work with them, fucking make them pay you. Like <laughs> seriously, like they, you need to set the terms because it's like, yeah. Because if you start walking away, they'll be like, oh my God, we need another brown person. <laughs> oh shit, yeah. You speak in your, one of your essays, you talk in terms of white supremacy mm. in these institutions. Now, that's mm -hmm. a term associated with the Klan and such. But th th obviously, you've deliberately taken that term. Yeah. What, can I ask you to unpack that? What do you mean? Yeah, so uh, the Australian Human Rights Commission recently did a study where they found that uh, across yeah, business law, academia, politics, they didn't look at the arts, but I would argue that's probably the same, that out of all the senior positions, 94% of people came from an Anglo-European background. Uh, and so white supremacy, I guess, the way that it functions in places like the NGV is that uh, the history that they're embedded in is based off uh, a racialized hierarchy where Anglo-European people are at the top and then there are the brown people in like, often another room somewhere else. And that the, all the people who are like making the decisions at an executive level all happen to, I don't know, be quite culturally homogenous. 
And that's, yeah, so it's sort of like, it's a racialized system of power that favors people from Anglo-European background that we still live with today. Like it's, yeah. And are you, do you see any signs of, any encouraging signs? I mean, you know, you're associated with the Footscray um, arts community. Now, that is a, a lovely space. They, and very really amazing, yes. yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, is there, are there rays of hope beyond the, you know, city fringe? You know, is the global city uh, defined as something, you know, I mean, it, you know, large populations of diverse people actually live in the outer suburbs, etc., at the fringe of our global cities. Um, how do you bring those people and those in the inner cities who have more power and access to cultural institutions together? Are places like Footscray, Art Centre, the kind of mediums to do that? I think Footscray is a really great example. Um, yeah, I think that they're just such a complex thing. Like, because the inner city, I, I guess through gentrification, which is really closely linked to social cleansing, to like, a, you know, a racialized dynamic of replacing particular people with other people, that like, that it's such a bigger question than the arts. Like, because I guess it, just in terms of geography, like, yeah, people are being forced out into, yeah, or living in particular communities that don't have, you know, that many, you know, resources or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. But no, I, yeah, so in terms of the arts and bringing people together, I feel like Footscray is a really good example. Um, and yeah, and I feel like in the arts, it's actually just like, fuck hiring people. Like, really? Like, dude, it's not that difficult. Um, and also audience development as well. Um, yeah, I guess it's, you know, it's really funny. Um, so the Australia Council uh, did a study into arts participation. And apparently 80% of people from a culturally diverse background engage with the arts compared to 72% of the mainstream population. And so it's like, people care about the arts, no matter what background you come from, there are just some institutions that people from a diverse background don't fucking care to go to. Like, yeah, serious, like that's, that's what it is. And so it's like critically considering that, that the issue may not be out there, it might be in here somewhere. Does that, does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, what, what I'm pushing for is some solutions. I mean, what, ah, you're, what, okay. you're, what you're talking about yeah. uh, is, you know, is disturbing and, and, um, and actually... But what are the solutions? People hunger for um, something more and people want access. So what, how do we get there? What, uh, what, is there a roadmap? Some blue sky? Yeah, <laughs> I guess, like, specifically in the arts, it comes down to funding. I think that that is actually, like, such a huge thing. Um, that funding is really important. Um, yeah. Um, so I guess, like, in terms of the arts, there you know should be like a three-pronged approach to diversity, which is the internal diversity of the organisation, representation on the stage, and then also audience development. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of like yeah, what you do. And then, it, and then also, I guess, like in the arts, it's also thinking about, I don't know what why you're doing diversity. Like, that really what it should be about is building long-term relationships with different communities and bringing people together. Like, and that's how change is made over time. Like, because I feel like at the moment, there's a lot of like individual projects that are being done to engage with diverse communities that once they're done, that's kind of, that's it, cool, we can go back to doing like real art or what we were doing previously. And it's like, no, that's actually not, on how this works at all, like the, the relationship building that 
is like so fundamental to how artistic communities run should be at the forefront as opposed to trying to have a really big blockbuster exhibition of brown people. <laughs> and and how does diverse, how does arts as a you know beyond even looking at diversity how does it how does it contribute to the global city? Uh, it really raises real estate prices uh, <laughs> in a huge way. And I think that's another thing with global cities that like the arts community has yes. to be really upfront about is that like, fuck, we're the foot soldiers for it. We're the ones that like real estate agents like love it when we move into neighbourhoods. And so I think we have to really think critically about how to overcome that as artists. And I think it also comes back down to community building. I just feel like, you know, I sort of work in the... Um, small gallery sector um, and I feel like a lot of these galleries open up in these poorer neighbourhoods and they're just like these, I don't know, these like outposts for people who've been to art school to come into like this particular like neighbourhood that ne hasn't necessarily had like access to that many resources and like, yeah, to allow people to come in and then eventually take over. And so it's like, yeah, I feel like art can play a beautiful role in building a global city but at the moment, all it's really doing in Melbourne is raising house prices. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Please join me in thanking Farah Farouk and bringing up Maddie Clark to the stage. <laughs> Maddie, welcome to the M Relay. Could I please ask you to give a three sentence introduction to yourself? Andy only had to do two. <laughs> um, hi. So um, I'm Maddie. I'm M Pavilion's writer-in-residence. Um, I also work for Un Magazine as their 2018 editor. Um, and I... What else? Um, <laughs> uh, I, I live in Footscray. I'm, I've been in Melbourne for about 10 years, but I'm Yugambara and I come from a nation in the southeast of Queensland, um, around the Gold Coast. Um, so, Maddie. Um, I, so I first encountered Maddie's work through Unmagazine. Um, and if you haven't read it, it's a really great uh, free publication that you pick up in a lot of galleries. And Maddie Clark and Nika Lehman are the editors this year. Um, and I was reading the editorial that you and Nika wrote this morning on my way here. Um, and I don't know, it was just... So it was the whole thing called The Unbearable Hotness of Decolonization, is that... That was the title the of the editorial, which oh, the then editorial. came okay. to be the name that the issue was known by. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, but in it, uh, sort of this surreal alternate reality is described um, within the art world. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, it plays into some of the things we discussed before but regarding decolonization. I guess, I'm wondering whether you could talk a little bit about that. It was inspired largely... Um, by, I guess, Sneaker and I, our sudden um, entrance into the art world, which kind of felt like being dropped into like a, yeah, an alternate reality. And we were, it was um, inspired by, I guess, the sudden presence of uh, a lot of white people around us wearing Decolonize Now t-shirts um, and uh, destroy white supremacy. And um, I think hashtag decolonization, um, which suddenly became a thing. And so I think we were kind of trying to make an ironic um, gesture towards that. Um, yeah. Um, 
So for us, I guess, we were thinking about, and I, this is what I relate to really strongly about uh, diversity language, is yeah. that the way that um, social movements become co-opted into buzzwords and into social trends mm. and into marketing, basically, and into capital. Um, and I guess related a bit to uh, what some of the, I guess, older Indigenous uh, people around us were sort of saying, which is like, be, beware of things that become... Uh, popular and beware of like the uses of decolonization, beware of becoming lazy um, and becoming um, focused only on symbology rather than on um, the materiality of decolonization and uh, the processes that uh, you you have to remain focused on, which is like eventually uh, decolonizing land, not just decolonizing um, image, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. So do you still think as a term it can be useful? Of course. Um, yeah. And I think for us it was more uh, facing a demand from, I guess, elders around us to take it seriously and don't become so focused on, um, yeah, tokenistic or metaphorical ideas around. And as young people who might have been engaged in, like, sort of anti-racist activism in Melbourne, where Melbourne is such a, and especially the art scene, is so focused on imagery and on visuals and on uh, appearing to be doing things right, Um but you kind of you can miss uh, what's going on underneath, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I guess in the same piece, you also discuss um, the transformative potential of activism and through culture. Mm. So, I whether you could could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, and I think for us, it was about sort of discerning, um, you know, holding on to the importance of cultural activism um, and activism in the arts that's being done by uh, community members. Um, and distancing that from declaring that something um, performative is actually transformational. Um, okay. So we're thinking a lot about the work of, say, this mob, for example, mm -hmm. and new, new wayfinders, and thinking about how they occupy and transform space, yeah. um, but also thinking about how uh, there's the, always the danger of being co-opted mm. into an existing structure through ideas of inclusion, right? Yeah. Um, and what do you think it is about this mob and New Wayfinders who are both um, young art collectives uh, here in Melbourne? What do you think sort of sets those collectives apart from maybe more aestheticised forms of uh, decolonisation? Yeah, so for me, like, um, you know, for example, when I get asked to be to participate in something in the art world, um, usually, you know, so for example, I'm on the board of UN now, um, after or after I sort of finish editing this issue, we, we do one-year terms, I'll be on the board. And for UN, it's very, you know, they're sort of saying, like, it's really important for us to have Indigenous board membership and Indigenous committee membership and this kind of thing. Um, we've always got to have at least one or two Indigenous people. And we're sort of like, yep, okay, so you've got one or two Indigenous people on your board. Um, when we're in the room, we definitely feel like the only one, you know. When, when you come to look at the work of this mob and Kate Tenburian, who works over at the Korean Heritage Trust, for example, like... Uh, in an art space, her method is very much to go into, you know, okay, say, say the gallery gives us this this space or this, uh, you know, this kind of allocates us this space or for an exhibition, we're going to take over that space for a period of weeks while we're developing the show. In the Footscray Community Art Centre, you might have seen, like, they had, um, they walled off the main gallery space and they said, no, no white people are going to come into this space for the duration of the time that... Um, the curators are developing this work with the artists. This is ours. And you can't, you know, and even having to sort of, you know, if people wanted to peek in and look at what was going on, they were shooed away, you know. And it's kind of like, this is not for you right now. Um, when the exhibition's ready to be shown, you will be able to see it. But for now, this is ours. And um, getting the institution, and I think Footscray is really good at this, but other galleries need to be taught. When you give that space, it's 
to, the, to you know to a, a collective like this mob, which is all Indigenous people, it's not yours anymore. It's theirs. Um, so what they do is to sort of say like, if you are taking this seriously, this is what it means. It means that you have to actually seed ground um, and give it to us to do what we want with it. Um, yes, yeah, interesting. Do you think that? I don't know, I, I get asked this question a lot when people think that I just hate white people when I don't. Um, but like, do you think that, you know, the institutions that currently like formulate the art world and the production of like culture in Australia, like, you know, do they have a role in the decolonization process? And what would that role look like? Yeah, I think, um that's hard to, I don't know if I know the art world that well, but I think that everyone has a role um, because everybody is benefiting from colonization and everyone is holding wealth, holding resources and holding land. And so it, it, that is everybody's, everyone is participating. And so everybody is, can, can and has to and must see themselves as participating in decolonization um, at all levels. And cultural decolonization is just as serious um, in that respect, yeah. Okay. Um and sorry, I think I was reading your bio that you do work like facilitating workshops about decolonization or not so much, no. Like I've I yeah. Um like do you do a lot of like community work with non indigenous people to at, sort of yeah, think about times. these issues? Yeah. yeah. Um and again, so yeah, like the most recent thing that I did was professional development with Switchboard, which is a LGBTQ um, organization. Um, and that was really interesting, again, as an example of, so an organization that is a, it's a community organization, it's um, trying to uh, diversify itself. Um, and maybe, um, yeah, so I think I had an experience there where I was giving professional development to them. And um, I think afterwards they've, yeah, again, there's been a few different um, kind of moves to ha have people in uh, steering committee positions, for example, or board positions, for example, and the CEO um, sort of approached me after the workshop and said, oh, like, um, thank you for everything you, you do for Switchboard. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's okay. And she's, they said sort of, um, yeah, you're, you're, on the, you're on the steering committee as well. And I was like, no, that's Tanine. That's Tanine Ernest Williams, if you know her. And I was like, you've mixed me up with the only other <laughs> Aboriginal person who uh, is in any kind of position of authority in this place and I was like you know we don't look very similar or anything like that but um, this is the kind of thing that happens on a regular basis I think um, and that's that's what I think of when I think of diversity is like yeah yeah, oh my God. yeah. Um, but do you think it's like do you think it's important work to do like do you yeah I don't yeah, like know I, like I've how do you keep on doing that work without getting really pissed off I've become really selective um, like really, really selective and really conscious of when you are um, being taken for a ride a little bit. So like, you know, when you were saying I've, you've done sort of eight or ten diversity panels um, this year, I was like, yeah, like if I said yes to everyone that I got asked to do, it would be a lot. Um, but I've been sort of screening a little bit more, um, in a little bit more of a serious way. And I think when there's always this sort of thing where you go, oh, like, are you going to pay me for this thing that you're asking me to do, which is actually worth a lot of money? Um, especially when it comes to organisations, um, like I get in the health sector, in the art sector, you're sort of saying like I'm, you're asking me to put in hours of labour, and you're, what you're, um, what the participants are going to get out of it is a lot. It's going to be like a, you know, a lot of hours of of thinking, of discussion, of facilitation, um, and the response that you get sometimes when they come back to you is like, no, you should be almost assuming you should be grateful that they've even asked you in the first place um, to participate. It's like, oh, we're giving you a voice. 
you know, and that's, that's the nasty part, I think, of doing the diversity work is that people think that you should be thanking them um, for doing things for free. I'm sure you've had that experience oh, before. Yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, sort of outside of Footscray, have you seen any other like really positive examples of organisations actually taking positive steps or taking it seriously in a good way? It's a bit further out, but Wyndham Cultural Centre has, has hired lead curators on an, in ongoing roles who are First Nations. Um, and in, all, in a lot of ways really opens their doors to the community um, for that and makes the, makes the space useful to the community around them. And they're not looking, and this is interesting thinking about like global cities, but they're not looking to the inner city. They're, they're looking to engage with the community in which they are in. And I think that is something that we had to really push on to do as well is for them to, you know, when we first took the role, both of Nika and I are not from Victoria. We're not Victorian Aboriginal people. We're both from interstate. And so we sort of said to them, you know, here are some ideas of people you can engage in the community around here. And they'll sort of go like, that's a bit too Melbourne, it's a bit too... And it's like, you are in Melbourne. Don't look to remote communities, look to the community in which you live um, because they are not being included in the art sector and they have not been historically included in the art sector and they've not been historically included in the community around this magazine either. So don't be looking like to WA, don't be looking to the Northern Territory, be looking around you. There's Aboriginal people here who need your resources as well. Um, and that was like a struggle a little bit, but we, you know, we got there with them. Um, but we really were like, how, how, you know, impolite does it look for us to take this position and then not to engage with the people around us who support us, who are sovereign custodians of country here? Um, and that's what I think a lot of arts people want to do. Um, Sorry, um, ask people want to do in terms of. I know you asked me for good examples. Yeah, yeah, yeah. good examples. Yeah. There's also the lifted brow. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, they're doing a really great. So the Lifted Brow are having a Black Brow edition um, coming out, I think, in the next couple of months. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They've hired Indigenous designers, Indigenous editors and a full Indigenous editorial committee for this issue and only Indigenous writers as well. Yeah. Um, I guess thinking about global cities, um, I don't know if you have much experience in urban planning or city... No. no. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I guess, like... Uh, what role does like a decolonial methodology have within a global city? Um, my first question is always, what does indigenous sovereignty look like when you con contemplate something like a global city? Um, or is it all just kind of lost in this, like, you know, this ideology of like everyone together, melting pot, this kind of thing? Like, what does that mean exactly? Um, would be my first question. Yeah, mm. but again, no urban planning experience whatsoever. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, I'm sure you have some interesting things to, to say about community building and cities and, you know, I think that maybe they should have people like us, you know, like consulting on these sorts of things. What is interesting is, like, um, the way that processes of gentrification are so global and can be so um, are so repeatable and so repeated everywhere. Like, I went to Vancouver last year and I stayed in um, the downtown east side, which I think reminded me a lot of Footscray. Um, it's, you know, often referred to as like one of the poorest and most downtrodden postcodes in all of Can all of Canada. Um, and but it's also a site of great community building and activism. And the, the way that gentrification is operated there is exactly to you know really similar to what's happening in Footscray, which is that now in Footscray all of these like kind of um, proposals are seeming to get off the ground for mixed use residential and commercial dwellings, and um, they are must as community building spaces, um, which is exactly what's happened there. And it shocks me how these ideas can travel so far and the strategies that they're employing can travel so far. Um, and 
how they can be so unchallenged. Um, but I think it also gives you a little bit of a sense that maybe the strategies of resistance can travel also. Um, and what could some of those strategies of resistance be? Um, I think, yeah, it's it's hard to, like, I think a lot of, like, um, you know, what you were saying earlier about how does, how can art, art, artists become aware of their role in that? Um, and how can artists also refuse that role a little bit? Um, I, I think so many artists, um, you know, I live in Footscray and a lot of artists move to Footscray and say, like, the, gentrif the, the gentrifiers and they won't be talking about themselves. And I think that they have to begin to understand that that is them and that is, they're exactly the, the people. And again, you can see this everywhere, like in, in, um, in the world, like the, the artists are being used on purpose um, to advance that agenda and to, you know, raise the rent and raise the status of the place. Um, so I think we have to really critically interrogate the artist class right now um, because they're, it's, they're, the, they're the worst ones because they're not really aware that that's who they are, you know? Everyone, please join me in thanking Andy Butler and may I please bring to the stage Gabrielle Duvetri. Maddie, over to you. Thank you. Hello. Hi. Hi. How are you going? Yeah, good. That was an interesting interview. Yep. Enjoying it so far. Um, so I might just let you kick off by introducing yourself. Yeah. Um, Sure. And giving everyone an idea of who you are and what you do. Yeah. Um, so I'm Gabrielle Devietri. I um, live around here on Wurundjeri land. And I um, am an artist and an activist. Um, that just about sums it up. I'm, I'm a um, co-founder of A Centre for Everything, which is a pedagogical program of events. Um, and a member of the Artist Committee... Center I think that'll do. Everything, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, artist and activist. Um, I guess those are the two keywords that stand out to me when I've been talking to you. Like, um, maybe we could just start by, like, maybe we could start by just kind of asking, how do these two terms sit next to each other for you? Because um, I think I've been really interested in, interested in like how how can artists see themselves as activists and vice versa? Um, what what is the crossover of art and activism? They can kind of sit together and they can also sit in conflict with each other. Um, for me, I really identify a particular turning point in, in my practice, which was um, the moment when I decided to withdraw my work from the Sydney Biennale in 2014 as um, a moment where I really reflected on what art was doing and what I was doing within it and how I was perpetuating certain narratives and ignoring others and um, actually what um, the urgency of our current social and environmental situation calls for um, and what what artists can do within that. So um, I guess ever since then I have been looking at ways that to have the same kind of impact on a political and economic landscape that my withdrawal of my work at, in the Sydney Biennale had but by making work and so my work shifted into something that was much more collaborative and also much more um, direct, I guess, in, in trying to influence social change. Yeah. So was that, uh, there was a boycott of the Biennale. Um, do you want to just talk a little bit about what the boycott was? Is that, was that yeah. when, the, when you withdrew your work? Sure, yeah. So in 2014, just before the Sydney Biennale was to open, about a month before uh, um, a designer in Sydney 
wrote an article saying I'm I'm not going to bring my class to the Sydney, to the Biennale this year because their main sponsor is Transfield and Transfield was negotiating a major new contract with the Australian government to take over all aspects of operation on the um, on Manus Island and Nauru of the offshore detention centres. And so once this article, this blog article was written up, that just, um, uh, someone just sent me a message saying you might be interested in this and having developed a work over two years um, that was about to open, um, naturally it was a pretty um, involved decision-making process as to what uh, would be the most effective um, and meaningful way to respond to that as a participating artist. So that it, it, it led to nine of us uh, withdrawing our work from the Biennale, which had quite a significant impact on the economic flow of um, Transfield, which had uh, subsequently shareholders withdrew their money, superannuation funds divested, they were forced to change their name to Broad Spectrum, they were bought out by a Spanish company that very quickly announced that they would no longer, um, that they would withdraw from the contract at the earliest possible opportunity. So um, the flow on effect of that action um, was, was huge um, and kind of more than what we could have hoped for. But it really set up this kind of like question, what are we participating in when we put our work into these big institutions? And I, that, that's why what Andy was saying about how these institutions are not, they're, they're so out of touch with with what with the reality of the rest of the world with like with what they're participating in and they uh, and artists are being used within that. Yeah, in and there was ways. I remember there was um, a few. It was such a moment, almost seemed like such a moment of opportunity that uh, the artists who were participating in the boycott had um, to influence what was going on with mandatory detention in a way that nobody had been able to do really before. In and um, I, I remember going to my first ever. Um, like World Refugee Rally in June in like oh, 2011 or something and just everyone there being like, we've been doing this rally for 20 years and it is getting worse. Everything is getting worse. Yeah, well, um, I think that we really heard um, the urgency that every, or the kind of opportunity that everyone felt when we held these these two public meetings, one in Melbourne and one in Sydney and... It was a kind of coming together of um, the arts community and the activism community and the advocacy community and the refugee community and their voices and the charge with which they urged us to do something with this opportunity was just so palpable and so moving. And it, um, at the time, I, I knew that I was going to withdraw my work, but I, didn't, I wasn't able to make it public at that point and it was it was really quite intense that the message that we were receiving from 200 people saying this is this is a moment and i think you know there's it hasn't dismantled the the industry um but yeah um it certainly had a had a made a big dent yeah mm. um and there was a few artists i remember who sort of said i don't i can't afford to withdraw my work necessarily and and then there was like almost a discussion about um, should we be putting pressure on people to refuse work with, you know, with that kind of politics in mind and a lot of other people saying, well, this is, there's no other way to go. Um, how do you, I guess this is like moving into like, I know that you're an independent artist, you have an independent practice. Um, so maybe you get to um, sort of, you're in a place now where you don't have to rely on institutions for all of the work that you do. Like, can you talk about that a little bit? 
Oh, it's an interesting relationship with institutions and it's one that um, is kind of more and more being questioned. I um, recently, with a group of collaborators in Narnham, we um, formed a, an online project called Artslog. It's a, a database of working conditions in the arts precisely because we were sick of complaining to each other about how um, shoddy the treatment is of, of artists and how, you know, what, what you were saying about your work um, uh, to kind of constantly cough up on diversity panels um, that, like, that um, is one aspect of what artists are required to do um, and the kind of expectation that you should be grateful for an opportunity because it's an opportunity. And um, this online database logs the fact that artists across um, all, all areas of their career are kind of donating this cultural capital. Um, and that, I think, is just as pronounced for a mid to late uh, established career artist as it is for early career artists. Um, and I think that it becomes especially pronounced uh, a lot of the stories that we've, um, that we've gathered on, on the log are stories from people who are um, queer or who are identified by, you know, the institution as diverse, um, who are asked to do that work for free, who are asked to come into universities to sit on panels and who are not being appropriately remunerated. And I think that, um, yeah, the kind of institutional, industrial, commercial structures that replicate those, um, those dynamics really need to be examined and, and resisted. Yeah, like the art world is definitely a place where I've noticed that social hierarchies persist, where even when they're sort of using the language of diversity and intersectionality and inclusion, um, they're so invested in terms like that. But um, and, and you would be really familiar with that, but was there anything in the database that came up that really shocked you? No, no, nothing was shocking. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's. Uh, well, I guess what it did is that it made me realise that this is not a personal problem. It's not. It's not because of um, the way I negotiate my business that I'm constantly being asked to do things for free and that I'm constantly feel like my work is precarious and that I need to be thankful and you know, not show this vicious ingratitude that, that Turnbull has marked artists with. Um, but it shows that it's an industrial problem mm. and that we need to see ourselves more as a, as a workforce mm. um, of artists and that that needs to become more collaborative and more community-based. And um, if we see ourselves as a workforce, then we have tools at our disposal and, yeah... Yeah, it's really interesting. So I was thinking about um, something that Maxine Benny Clark, who is a writer, like said, which is that she said, um, sometimes things happen in the world that make me think, oh, being a writer is such a waste of time. It's so self-indulgent. And um, I wish I'd just gone back to doing law because um, that feels like something like a more concrete way of making social change. Um, so I was wondering if, yeah, we could, you could comment a little bit on um, whether art, whether you, you believe that art can make meaningful social change and how. It's a really good question um, and it, it's one that I also struggle with on a very frequent basis. Um, I do believe in the potential of art to introduce that incisive and transformative moment. Um, the most effective moment that I've seen that happen though was with a withdrawal. Yeah. Um, and so it's become my um, task to see whether 
I can create that same kind of change with the skills and the talents and the aesthetics and the um, the structures of, of art. And so um, the formation of the Artist Committee, which is a group of collaborators working here, um, have been working on this issue and it's about looking at how um, industrial uh, and commercial processes um, continue these cycles of oppression and the ways in which they work through the culture industry to buy their social licence to operate. So, for example, last year, um, the National Gallery of Victoria, just across the road, started a contract with Wilson Security, who um, were the security or are the security providers still on um, at the detention centres on on Nauru, and were also working on Manus Island. Um, and we carried out um, a series of uh, well, we went through all the civil means of dissent, you know, letter writing, petitions, um, polite meetings, um, but we were told that there was nothing that that could be done about this contract between Wilson Security, um, known abusers, um, and our trusted cultural institution. Um, and so we decided to kind of create a series of interventions that um, would mean that they would have to choose between their public image and their commercial interests. Um, so we covered up uh, the image of Picasso's Weeping Woman, which is an, uh, kind of intended as a universal image of human suffering. Um, we found it this kind of disturbing dilemma that, that the guards who were perpetrating this kind of suffering elsewhere were looking over this, um, this image of, uh, of a suffering person. And so we covered it up and guarded it and they shut down the galleries around us and the director came to see what was happening and... Um, you know, media came and we, we wanted to really kind of use that sensibility that we had as theatre makers, as photographers, as performers, as artists and... Uh, but then also take from that activist's toolkit um, and have our police liaisons and our buddy system and our internal codified communication system and, you know, like really trying to merge those two worlds and see what can come out of that connection. Um, and I noticed a lot of the work that you make, you know, even talking about collaboration, like a lot of the work that you make is on climate change. Like there's some, some, some of that thematic coming up and I heard like I've, there's a bit of um, a bit more growing awareness of the role of artists in actually participating in and almost dissolving the boundary between the sciences and the arts in thinking about problems like that. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that maybe? Yeah, um, I mean, I think that the... <laughs> the situation that we're in is so urgent and compelling that we almost, like, we're forced into having to address this in everything that we do. Um, and so, yeah, some of the work that I've done collaboratively is around around climate change and actually we're um, just about to uh, embark on another project which Andy will be involved in, um, which is about mapping all those relationships between the um, fossil fuel industry and the arts and culture in Australia. The ways in which the, the banks, the um, legal firms, the accounting firms, the industrial arms, the like all these arms of the fossil fuel industry um, ingratiate themselves to the Australian public through their association with uh, cultural institutions. They appear on boards, they, um, they sponsor exhibitions, they partner up and so they become this trusted uh, 
this trusted name within the Australian public's eye. And so, um, yeah, I think that we need... that. There's, there's never been a kind of comprehensive survey on what these connections are and how imbued they are into in our arts and culture um, sector. Yeah, and a lot of those institutions as well love the words diversity. Um, you know, like people like, you know, for NAB, for example, is like such a strong diversity policy and such a strong hiring policy. Like Rio Tinto does it as well. Like all of those companies, like they have such um, comprehensive reconciliation action plans. Absolutely. Do you feel like diversity becomes then like a tool mm. for them? Yeah, well, I, I don't know if anyone else was at the Sarah Ahmed talk um, the other night, but she spoke about how um, diversity is a solution that prevents us from actually finding a solution. That if, a, the, if an institution has a process in place, then they don't have to actually address the, the core of the issue. And I feel like when I've brought up the issue of Rio Tinto with um, people within the mining industry, um, I also was born in Kalgoorlie and that probably means one thing and that's that you're well it can mean lots of things but for for someone like me it means that you come from a mining family so I get to have these conversations with people in that industry and they say oh but Rio Tinto they're like a model uh that you know they're a model company and you know that's if you know <laughs> they're a model company and um uh, and somehow that means that even though Mr. Sam Walsh is currently under investigation for corruption charges as part of his job at Rio Tinto. He still gets to have the most important job in the arts in Australia as the chair of the Australia Council. That's the function <laughs> of diversity in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone, could you please thank Maddie Clark and Pavilion's writer in residence. You are listening to part one of the 2018 M Relay series, a lively tag team of conversations interrogating cities and what we mean by diversity. Stick around for part two in the next episode of the series.